Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. What a time to be alive. A feast of snooker is uh, lying before us like a great banquet. Um, I refer, of course, to the European Masters in Milton Keynes this week, uh, the Welsh Open in Newport next week, and to the Turkish Masters in Antalya the week after. Three weeks solid, and plenty more to come after that in uh, what is uh, an exciting time for the game. And, uh, yeah, so it's all it's all good stuff, and uh, it's all... Uh, I, I should say, on Eurosport, but also uh, you can check it out online, Discovery Plus, etc., etc. And uh, BBC Wales also have coverage of the Welsh Open. And I'm sure lots of other platforms around the world, and apparently wherever you are in the world now, you can watch snooker. You can also listen to this. And our friends in Fiji are still listening. We're not number one anymore. That's fine. That's fine. They're saying, OK, you know, we've given you a little... Uh, you've given you your chance, but we're, st- we're still top ten, which is, uh, which is good news. Um... <laughs> Rather rambling start, but uh, the good news is this week uh, we've got a lot to get through. A lot of uh, people have written in, and um, a lot of subjects. He's always interested, I think, reading the emails, the sort of split between people who want to talk about the game now and people who want to go through sort of historic things, which is exactly what I always wanted this podcast to be. It's about snooker full stop. It doesn't always have to be about what's happening now. Equally, it doesn't all have to be uh, about nostalgia. Now, to the emails, and the first thing to say this week is it's been a vintage week for emails. All the emails this week are really, really good. Now, there'll be people who've emailed in the past saying, hang on, so what, you're saying ours are lousy then? I'm not saying that, but it's been a very consistently uh, high standard of email this week. And John Doran, now he wrote a couple of weeks ago uh, listing all the snooker venues that Bob Dylan had played at. And, you know, most podcasts, that'd be enough. You'd think, oh, my work is done, but John has come up trumps again. And this is a terrific, uh, terrific email, which I will read now. He says, I was thinking about what makes particular shots memorable. It seems that the most important factor is the context. For example, a shot played at a critical stage in a final. Rarely is it because of the brilliance of the shot itself. There are so many brilliant shots played in the course of a season that it's difficult for one to stand out in the memory. In thinking about this, I try to think of the most memorable shot from the last 40 years on each colour. And this is what came to mind. Okay, so he's gone through every colour. We start with the black. He said, this one is easy. The black ball finished in the 1985 World Championship. The most memorable shot in that sequence was probably Steve Davis's miss on the penultimate shot. A close second in terms of memorability is Stephen Hendry's miss black to the middle pocket in the deciding frame of the 1998 Masters final against Mark Williams. In both cases, it's interesting that it's the miss that's the most memorable rather than the pot. Pink. This was the colour I found most difficult. No single shot on the pink immediately stood out to me. I've chosen Judd Trump's miss on the final pink in the deciding frame of the 2020 UK Championship final against Neil Robertson. Not the easiest shot, but you'd expect Judd to get it. I'm sure Judd finds it difficult to forget that one. Another possibility is Steve Davis's pink in his 147 in the 1982 Lada Classic, a 
Great screw shot with the rest to land on the final black. The blue. Willie Thorne's missed blue in the 1985 UK Championship final against Steve Davis. He was 13-8 up in a 1st to 16 match. Hard to forget and still hard not to shudder at the memory of that miss out of the rest of the match as Steve came back to win 16-14. Poor Willie. Brown. Stephen Hendricks pot on the brown during the final of the 1992 World Championship against Jimmy White. The white ball was in the jaws of the middle pocket. Stephen potted it to the green pocket, landing perfectly on the yellow, which was near the bottom cushion. A brilliant shot. I think Hendry was 14-9 down at the time, and if he missed, may well have lost the title. Green. There are two shots on the green that I can't separate. The first is Karen Wilson's fluke green in the deciding frame of the 2020 World Championship semi-final against Anthony McGill. Unbelievable frame and unforgettable fluke. The second memorable green is Judd Trump's brilliant long pot during the 2021 German Masters semi-final against Barry Hawkins. So loaded with topspin that the white came off the bottom cushion at speed and then stopped dead for perfect position on the brown. Probably a once-in-a-lifetime shot. And he says there's a great YouTube video about this shot by Barton Snooker called The Greatest Shot of All Time Explained, which is worth watching. Yellow. The yellow that most quickly came to mind was Cliff Thorburn's during his 147 break in the 1983 World Championship. It was a long yellow, which nowadays is pretty routine shot but this is the one that sticks in the memory. So that leaves just two, red. We see so many brilliant shots on reds, how do you select one? Surprisingly, I found that it was not too difficult. I chose the final red in Ronnie O'Sullivan's 147 in the winning frame of the 2014 Welsh Open final against Ding Junhui. The red was in the wrong half of the table near the cushion. Ronnie potted it to the green pocket left-handed and screwed the white back for perfect position on the final black. It was amazing, and I think Ronnie picked it out as his best ever shot. And the white, what's the most memorable in-off? I think it's Karen Wilson's in off to the middle pocket in the same frame as his, as his fluke green mentioned above. After all of McGill's missed pot shots on the final red that moved the frame into the snooker's required stage, it was unbelievable that Wilson moved it back out again with this in off. Two of my most memorable shots of all time in the same frame. And what a frame. Would be interesting to hear if you disagree with the above choices and what particular shots other listeners would pick as alternative. Well, what about that? What a terrific email and a lot to think about. And as, as I was reading it, I actually thought you could separate it out actually even, even further. What's the most memorable pot and miss on each of those balls? So we'll go back down the list. The black, yeah, Davis's miss on the black, probably the most famous miss black of all time. The most famous potted black of all time, I guess would have to be Dennis knocking it in. Um, but for me, actually... I think, I think we always think with blacks, we think 147s, and there's two in particular in maximums. Um, the first was Stephen Hendry at the Crucible. He, he made the only uh, one table, or a maximum in the one table uh, setup. And to make the 147, the last black, he had to cut back. Vicious cut back. Um, brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. Uh, typical of that mid 90s Hendry, you could do anything. And the other one, I guess, would be Mark Selby uh, making the 100th 147 at the uh, UK Championship, I think 2013. And he very unusually potted the black into the left middle pocket. And usually the last black of a maximum is one of the corners because it's always on its spot. But he's actually finished close to the top cushion and he's potted it into the, the middle. Uh, pink. Fair enough. Judd Trump's Miss Pink was in recent times very, uh, very memorable. Um, and uh, I think the, the pot that you mentioned, Davis, on that 147, that was a great shot in any frame. You know, he's, like you say, screwed the... Screwed the, the, the cue ball off the side cushion for the black. So, uh, yeah, um, using the rest. So, yeah, I'll go with that. Blue, Willie Thorne's missed blue, absolutely. Um, potted blue, well, Stephen Hendry in the 1990 UK Championship, he was 15-14 down to Steve Davis in the final. First to 16 wins. And he potted the blue, the last blue in the frame, uh, with the rest 
uh, an acute angle, um, which I'm pretty sure uh, uh, we're not supposed to use that term, are we? I think a listener wrote in a few weeks ago, chiding commentators for saying an acute angle. But anyway, he potted it <laughs> into the green pocket, went on to win the frame and indeed then won the decider. The Brown, definitely Hendry's Brown in that 92 final, as you, as you outline, could have been 15-9 down. That could have been it, possibly, but 14-10 uh, back in the match. And in terms of missed Brown, well, it wasn't actually missed, but the one that sticks out for me, because it did cost in the match, Jamie Burnett against Terry Griffiths, World Championship. This is on YouTube, as most things are. Uh, good friend MJT Snooker has uploaded it. So he's in the decider with Terry Griffiths. Um, it's nine each. Uh, he, he just needs the brown to win. And for some reason, instead of just potting the brown, he, he elected to screw back towards the middle pocket for the blue, and he screwed into the middle pocket. So he did pop the brown, but the white went in, and Terry cleared up to win 10-9. That, well, that one all... I remember watching that live at the time, and I just, still just can't believe what a mess he made of it, basically. Unbelievable. Uh, the green, uh, Karen Wilson's flute green... Yeah, fair enough. The thing about that, though, is, I mean, you know, there's so much been said about that frame because there's so much to say about it, but McGill had a golden chance before that to win. He had a golden chance to win. I think he ended up snooking himself, um, possibly on the yellow. I can't actually remember now, but anyway, he should have won before then. Uh, Mist Greens, I'm sure there's an obvious one, um, but I just can't think of one right now, but to anyone who can, contact us. And the yellow, yeah, Thorburn's yellow is memorable for sure. Um, I guess the most famous missed yellow would be Tony Mio in that uh, in that classic final against Steve Davis when someone shouted out um, and put him off when he was poised to poised to win. Uh, terrible business that was. Uh, Reds, I think the, the O'Sullivan red absolutely I would go along with. But as you said, there've been so many. I mean, so many potted, so many missed. Um, it's it's quite hard to sort of uh, sort of come up with even a shortlist. But um, yeah, definitely, uh, that was a great pot. And in terms of memorable in-offs, well, I mentioned the Jamie Burnett one. There's been, obviously, you know, a, a lot of others that have been significant, a lot that haven't. But um, happy to happy to take your suggestion on that. But if anyone's got any other choices for any of that, then let us know, because uh, I think that's a great subject. And, uh, and most importantly for this podcast, pretty niche. So what are the most memorable shots, pots or misses on all the, on all the colours, I guess? Okay, uh, Elliot Jordan, and I like I like the the way this email starts because you're a man after my own heart, Elliot. I.e., lazy because he says, he says I was watching the snook at the weekend and not being on social media, and to be honest, I couldn't be bothered looking it up. <laughs> a question popped into my head that's always intrigued me: a player plays a shot, and by a strange quirk of fate, the balls end up in a way where it's impossible for them to play a legal shot. E.g., a player's on a colour, but the cue ball is surrounded by reds. In this situation, does the player have to forfeit the frame? Or do they just accept the foul, play it, and the frame continues? Thank you for the podcast, which is the first pod I listen to every week. Yeah. What, one in the eye for, uh, well, all the other podcasts. Um, <laughs> well, well, Elliot, um, this actually, there's footage of this again on YouTube, which I actually stumbled across the other day. Uh, the 80, 1983 World Final, Steve Davis, Cliff Thorburn, this happened to Steve. He potted a red, and the cue ball went into the cluster, and he basically... Couldn't, could not get out to hit a colour. He was just trapped. And Clive is commentating and explains it superbly. Uh, Len Ganley's the referee. And as Clive explains, you have to make what the referee deems to be a reasonable attempt. Even though it's impossible to hit one, you have to play a shot that looks like you're trying to hit one. Otherwise, it can be called a miss. 
So Steve had to make an attempt to hit a colour, a reasonable attempt, even though it was going to be a foul. And in that scenario, the referee, Len Ganley, as I say, um, gave the foul but not a miss and the frame continued. So that's that's basically, you've got to play, you've got to try and play a shot even though you're not going to hit one. Uh -huh. And yeah, that, that, that did happen. I mean, I'm sure it's happened since, but that, that may be the most famous uh, example of that because it was in a world final. Nikki Tier. Just a quick email to firstly say how much I adore the podcast and your general witty, engaged and wonderful presence in the world of snooker. What about that for a start? <laughs> it can it can only go downhill from here, except it doesn't. It doesn't, because he touches on an interesting subject here. He says, uh, I've been meaning to get in touch since you mentioned diversity a few weeks ago, and that as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been an openly gay snooker player. Not that I think any player is under any obligation to tell us which cushion they prefer to go in off. <laughs> More of interest, though, and an area I think rarely covered on the podcast, are the sexy boys of snooker from over the years. A friend of mine with decades of staunch heterosexuality behind him grew up supporting Tony Knowles. And although I don't think I really fancied any players in my youth, let's not forget that Stephen Hendry used to feature as a pin-up in Looking magazine alongside the likes of Bross and Jason Donovan. Alan McManus also had the nod from some with refined tastes, with Ronnie, of course, also attracting many over the years. Paul Hunter was my true love, though. Hours were spent obsessing about his cue action. <laughs> One friend was very fond of Jamie Cope, and the likes of Matthew Stevens, Dominic Dale, and Michael White, clearly a bit of a Welsh fetish, have piqued my interest over the years. I'd not wish to impose a normative definition of beauty, as we all fancy different things, but I do think we're in a bit of a golden age for snooker talent. Jack Mazowski, Xiao Jingtong, Neil Robertson, Alexander Ersenbacher, Kao Yupeng, Judd Luca. Some friends have also helped me see the light, even with Mark Selby too. Hope the podcast continues, and I'd also be interested to hear other listeners' snooker crushes. Michaela Tab was always a favourite of a couple of my snooker friends, and Seema and Radzi have both attracted some attention recently, if not always for their snooker-specific presenting skills. So basically, <laughs> thank you, Nikki. Basically, what we're saying then is uh, let us know which players you fancy. That's what we've come. That's what we've come to on the podcast. Um, now, of course, there's one name that's been missed out here from from the eighties. Uh, the, the snooker pinup that was Kirk Stevens. Kirk Stevens, uh, you know, he obviously wore the white suit and uh, was, uh, a, you know, a, a very good-looking man. And uh, there's always a sense of excitement around him in that sort of boom time, sort of rock and roll period. He was obviously, you know, sadly developed an addiction, as we know, and, and you know, his career ended because of it. But uh, he was a he was a very popular player. Tony Knowles, you mentioned, but Kirk Stevens as well. Um, I mean, there have been a few gay players, but, you know, that's entirely their business. No, nobody else's. Uh, you, good, good mention of Look In magazine, by the way. That, 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 does date, uh, that does date things very much in the 80s. I, I, I wasn't aware Stephen Hendry was a pin-up in that, but uh, anyway. Um, but as, as in terms of now, I mean, uh, you, you mentioned a few names there. Let's be honest. I mean, the, the, the number one has got to be Jack. Jack Lazowski. I actually went on his, his Instagram just before recording this just to see... What he posted on there, and uh, you know, he, he, I'm put it this way: he's got a lot of followers. <laughs> he's got a lot of followers, and quite rightly. And um, I was interested in a comment on Gods of Snooker by the uh, the journalist Julie Welsh, who sort of acknowledged that for some women, uh, th there is a certain appeal to snooker in essentially watching men close up, as she put it, in captivity. <laughs> you know, they're wearing sort of smart clothes, and you're. You're, yes, you're watching the game. Of course, I'm not saying I'm not saying women watch snooker just to watch the men, but you know that's that that is part of it, and it's part of it. I'm sure for a lot of men as well. So, um, essentially, what we're saying is, let us know 
which snooker players you fancy, and uh, we'll see. We, well, maybe we'll develop our own ranking list. Um, oh, that, that's ranking list, by the way. Um, over the <laughs> over the uh, over the next few months, maybe. But uh, I think Jack has got to be number one. I know he has a, he has a lot of supporters. I know, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, thinking about it, Steve Davis in the eighties famously won Rear of the Year. So Steve, you know, not not thought about necessarily for his uh, aesthetic appeal. Well, that year, that year he, he was. Uh, we'll, we'll move on, I think. Um, Luke Williams, I very much enjoyed the latest podcast, and it was encouraging to hear one of your correspondents is looking forward to my Patsy Hoolihan book on the subject of re-racks being a lot more common these days than they used to be. Here's some evidence of that view, which I came across while researching the book. In the 1965 English Amateur Championship final between Houlihan and John Spencer, a re-rack was required in frame three. Amazingly, this was sufficiently unusual an occurrence that it was reported on widely in the media, both local and national newspapers. The Times newspaper, for example, under the headline Snooker Frame Abandoned, noted... There was a remarkable incident during the first period yesterday with Julian leading Spencer 2-0. The third frame had to be abandoned and the ball set up again. Spencer was in front 25-14 when the black was left on the brink of a pocket with the remaining 11 reds massed in front of it. For 25 minutes, the players brushed the pack, which eventually became immovable. The players consulted the referee who decided that the deadlock could only be ended by starting the frame again. And Luke says the Newcastle Journal went so far as to claim the incident was unprecedented in the history of the competition. Can you imagine a snooker re-rack being the main focus of a news item in the 21st century national newspaper? Well, the answer obviously to that is no. And, uh, you know, you, we'd be happy now if the Times reported snooker at all. Never mind re-racks. It, it does seem extraordinary. Um, but I suppose, like anything that's unusual, um, you know, it becomes newsworthy. So, uh, but thanks for that. That's, that's incredible to think that... You know, there was such a sensation about a re-rack. Um, yeah, I mean, well, it doesn't bear thinking about, really. Now, uh, <clears throat> Seb writes, I hope you're well. I'm Seb, a 21-year-old snooker enthusiast. I started watching this great sport probably more recently than the average listener of your podcast when I watched the 2018 World Final between John Higgins and Mark Williams. Since then, my love the sport of the sport has grown, watching every event religiously and managing to attend two events in 2021. The World Final between Selby and Murphy and a session of the World Grand Prix in December. My question is around what snooker can do to appeal more to my age group. I'm jealous that the days of the 80s are over, and snooker, just quite frankly, is not popular amongst my age group. I know nearly no one at my entire university that enjoys snooker or watches it at all. It's a real shame that it clearly doesn't enthuse a good proportion of the younger demographic. What do you think could be done to re-enthuse the younger generation? I was wondering if you have any ideas you'd like to see implemented. It would certainly be good to actually have people my age to discuss snooker with properly. It's an interesting point, this, Seb. Um, I remember being at school. Um, th th there's a point to this story. I remember being at school and the first day, comprehensive school, first day you had to... Um, give a presentation, introduce yourself to the class and say, just talk about one of your hobbies. And I talked about snooker. Um, but there was nothing unusual about that. That that was There were lots of people in the class who knew exactly what I was talking about, had the same interest in it. It was not a niche thing to say. It would be like going in now and saying, literally, I'm into football. I mean, it was there was nothing strange about it. Whereas I know people, as a, uh, one of my friends who works at World Snooker, who grew up loving snooker, but almost had to hide it in the <laughs> at school because it, it would have been seen as a bit strange. Um, so, um, 
that is the way it's changed, I guess. Um, but here's the thing, okay? You say, what, what, do you, what do I think should be done? Well, you tell me, because there's nothing worse than a middle-aged person trying to claim that they know what a 21-year-old wants. You are of that demographic, so what are your ideas? And I think we should listen to people such as yourself who are into snooker at that age. How do you feel uh, the game could be made more attractive to people of your age? I guess, it, it, to sort of answer it, I guess it's got to be around the sort of digital space, social media space that people of your generation occupy um, as a sort of natural part of life. It, it doesn't seem odd to you, any of that, because you've grown up with it. So maybe more can be done on that score. Um, I mentioned, I think, a few weeks ago that World Snook have made a success of their TikTok account. Um, now, that, that sentence will mean nothing to a lot of people, but to a certain age group, you know, TikTok, again, is just something that you do look at every day and it's just their part of your life. They did one video, it had 13 million views. You know, it seems extraordinary. But um, so I guess it's going to be around that. My feeling is, OK, and I know I said it's patronising to answer this, but I'm going to answer it because you did ask me. <laughs> My feeling is that in the sort of digital media stuff they do, and, and I commend what they actually do, I think they, they're a very creative team. But I think what they could do is try to spread the tentacles a bit further than just snooker fans. So, for example, it's all very well they do this thing, what's in my cue case, OK? Now, that is of interest to hardcore snooker fans, but it's not going to be of any interest at all to a casual sports fan. Who cares what's in someone's cue case, right? What they need is to find a way of getting maybe influencers, I can't even say, influencers. <laughs> See, this is, this is why I shouldn't be answering this question. Influencers on board. For example, ITV did a thing a couple of years ago with Chris Hughes. Now, Chris Hughes, he works on their racing coverage now and again, but he was on Love Island, OK? And from out of that, he got a massive following. He does have a massive following on Instagram and, you know, all the other, all the other platforms. I mean, literally millions of people. And he came along and interviewed Judd Trump. I think they've subsequently become good friends. Um, and he spoke to him as someone close to his age about things they both like, like music and fashion and whatever, and it was great. It did massive numbers um, in terms of social media because Chris Hughes is bringing in his fan base from outside snooker. And I think that, that's what we need. When they do these house visits, you know, get someone like him to do it, talking to the players on their level. Um, that Maybe that will be a way of um, spreading the, the gospel a little bit more rather than just focusing entirely on... You know, you go on the World Snooker YouTube and it's like, here's a century from Barry Hawkins. Here's what Sean Murphy said after his match. All of that's fine, of course. That's part of the, you know, the, the daily sort of uh, churn of the circuit, what's, what's happening in tournaments. But we also need stuff involving people not into snooker um, to, to hopefully bring them into the net, if you like. So I guess that's my answer, is try and do more stuff that appeals not just to snooker fans, and don't alienate snooker fans in, in the process, but if you're going to go to, let's say, well, let's <laughs> let's um, bring Jack Lazowski back into this, OK? Say you're going to go to his house, OK? They've done these home visits with some other players, OK? Take someone round there who's closer to his, to his age, you can talk to him on his level, um, and preferably who has... a a ton of social media followers who will see that and think, oh, he seems cool, maybe Snooker's cool. You know, that's just one idea. But but I, I go back to what I said earlier. 
Seb, you're 21, so you tell me what you think should be done because you you know you know this demographic far better than I do. Stuart May uh, is our next correspondent. It's a high standard this week. He's got to be said, you know, everyone has brought their A game. Oh, the emailers. He says, I've been following your podcast for a while now, find them very informative, and I must listen to every week. I thought I would ask your opinion, which I've noticed for a while now, about scheduling of matches. At the time of writing this email, the Welsh Open qualifying matches are nearly over, and the European Masters is on the horizon. In the Welsh Open, of the 16 qualifying matches that include a player from China, five were scheduled for 10am, seven for 1pm, and four for 4pm, with no match scheduled for 7pm. The upcoming European Masters, only the Monday and Tuesday schedules were available. However, of the 13 matches that include or potentially include a player from China, 10 are scheduled for 10am, 1 for 2.30pm and 2 for 7pm. I understand the time difference in watching the matches in China would mean the 7pm matches would start at 3 in the morning. And it also may be something to do with the gambling revenue that such matches would bring. However, is it unfair on players, not from China, to have a probability of more varying match times in comparison? In my opinion, it should be played out as much of it as a level playing field as possible, and match scheduling done randomly with the possibility of having a late start match as equal as any other time slot. I would appreciate hearing your thoughts on this. Well, Stuart, um, <coughs> I'll say this from the outset. I don't know for sure that this is done for Chinese TV, um, but it may be, and it sort of makes sense. Um, it's a big market. Obviously, Chinese TV pay for the rights, and there's a streaming platform out there as well, which pay a lot of money for the rights. Um, and they want Ding and Jiajing Tong and all the others in kind of prime time. So it makes sense if they play a match at 10 in the morning British time, that would be 6 at night in China. The afternoon match would be a bit later, but it's still night time. It's not so great uh, in the middle of the night. Now, is that an advantage to the Chinese players? I don't really see why. And not everyone likes playing in the morning. And I've often thought, like, Ding um, at the Crucible, particularly in the early rounds, always when he's been a seed, always seem to be on in the morning. And do people really want to play at 10am? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure it did his chances actually that, that much good. Um, so I'm not sure I'm not sure it's necessarily an advantage. Um, I think, I mean, I'm not a snooker professional. If I was and I could pick a time to play, it would definitely be the afternoon because it's not too early and it's not too late. And once you play your match, you have the night off. You're not building up to it all day long because you've got to play at night. Now, some players I know like playing at night. Um, I don't know that many that like playing in the morning. Um, in terms of it should be a level playing field, well, it's, we've discussed before that, for example, Ronnie O'Sullivan in most of the BBC events, or certainly the, the Masters in the UK, will pretty much play every, every session in the afternoon because that's when they're live on TV. That's when they want the, you know, the box office uh, player. So it's not necessarily a level playing field at the moment, um, but you know it, it's it's a, the professional sport is underpinned by broadcasting revenue. If Chinese television prefer the Chinese players to play earlier in the day, honestly, I don't have a problem with that. I think um, it's an important market, and does it make that much difference to the results? No, I'm not so sure it does. Our next email is from Anthony in County Wicklow. He says, I'm a long-time snooker fan and regular listener to your podcast, which I really enjoy. I have three topics to run by, if that's okay. Feel free to pick and choose just one or two of them, as I know it's a long email. Well, we'll, we'll go through them all, Anthony. You know, we're all friends here. He says, they're just observations about which I'd be interested to know your thoughts. They are eyesight affecting older players, BBC coverage and one-time winners. Okay, so we're going to go through them one at a time. Anthony says, a few years ago, I acquired my own 
by four foot table and I regularly practice. However, despite believing I have a flair for the game, I regularly break much beyond 30 points. I put this down to inconsistency and declining eyesight in middle age. This got me thinking about players who still play well after their prime. I recently watched Stephen Hendry play Ken Doherty in the World Seniors and I was surprised at some of the misses between them. Am I right in thinking that age-related eyesight and reduced field of vision are the main factors in decline seen by so many older players? And if so, why does it not seem to affect O'Sullivan, Higgins and Williams? Well, let's deal with that first. I mean, those three, the more you think about it, those three that you mentioned, the class of 92, they kind of almost feel like freaks of nature in a way, because like you say, most men, um, and women as well, but sort of men on the circuit in their mid-40s, their eyesight does decline. Now, if you ever see Joe Johnson, he'll give you chapter and verse on this. Joe is an expert on eyesight, um, and uh, I mean, he's had his eyes lasered and all sorts, but um, it's pretty common that men in their 40s, their eyesight starts to change, a lot of them start needing glasses, and so as a snooker player, that must be a nightmare because there's so many different distances um, that you're involved in, you know, long potting or short range, your eyesight obviously depends on quite strongly. It doesn't, like you say, it doesn't seem to affect any of those guys. That none of them wear glasses, and they all just seem to have, have perfect eyesight, which is kind of weird, but um, just reflects on how special they are, I suppose, those three. Uh, but definitely, I think other players. I mean, Ray Reardon at one point, and actually the ITV opening titles. There's a shot of this. He, he because of um, the glare from the lights, he wore a visor. He wore a sun visor at some tournaments. Um, and he had the, the old Dennis Taylor glasses on as well, and, you know, it's affected a lot of players, but, yeah, these special champions, it doesn't seem to. Judd Trump, let's not forget, Judd Trump, he had his eyes lasered a few years ago, just before he went on his great run, and this is maybe not mentioned um, so much, we talk about having his brother Jack with him and all the rest of it, but that must have made a big difference, the fact that he can see properly. Martin Gould, he got new glasses, he always used to wear just normal spectacles, and he got snooker glasses and you know, has done really well since. So, yeah, it's definitely a, a, an important topic. Dennis Taylor, um, I mean, I grew up wearing glasses and I still wear them now. And he has my own undying respect um, for winning that world championship wearing a pair of glasses because it's just so unusual to see at that point. But, of course, now, you know, over the years, we've become used to other players uh, other players wearing them. Uh, Jack Carnham, the old BBC commentator, uh, actually made Dennis's glasses. A little uh, little bit of information there. Anthony continues, on a separate point, last year's World Championship was the first where I felt the old magic of the TV production on the BBC had really waned. It was like they were trying too hard to appeal to a younger audience. Just one example, and no offence me meant to Jack Lazowski, but I find his monotone voice irritating. He comes across too cool for school. I've sent to hear the BBC plan to offload John Virgo and Dennis Taylor, and while I think new presenters are brilliant, it seemed that Hazel Irvin, Steve Davis, John Parrott, Stephen Hendry and Ken Doherty each had less airtime than usual. Perhaps that wasn't the case, but it seemed like it. Uh, well, uh, Jack, it's, a, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster for Jack uh, on this week's podcast because we, we've said how attractive he is, but now he's been accused of having a monotone voice. Um, too cool for school? I don't know. I think they were trying to, we, going back to what was, we were discussing earlier, trying to appeal to a younger audience. I saw him and Judd Trump uh, demonstrating a few shots on the, on the practice table, which I thought was terrific. Um, you know, a couple of young guys just enjoying themselves, nothing wrong with that. Um, so I, I didn't have a problem with them, but uh, everyone has their own opinion. Um, I can't, can't say whether the people you mentioned had less airtime or not. Um, what I can say is this year's, uh, without giving anything away, this year's presenting lineup up um, is quite interesting, I think. Hazel is back, I believe. 
and uh, the second presenter is uh, is uh, well someone who um, hasn't done it for a few years, I suppose. Anyway, it's not David Icke, by the way. He's not coming back. Uh, that would be <laughs> that would be interesting. But uh, yes, so that will all be that will all be revealed in due course. Um, I think uh, you've got to not getting into the Virgo Taylor thing again, but you have to sort of try and refresh these things and getting Trump and Lazowski involved was certainly a step towards that. But I guess those guys would rather be playing and, you know, whether they have any sort of um, long-term future doing. I think Jack did do some of the Masters, didn't he? Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll see. But, you know, each to their own, I suppose. And finally, on a related note, I thought, this is Anthony again, I thought that Sean Murphy, quite unexpectedly, played brilliantly in last year's World Championship. He may have come uh, runner-up, but it seemed to me he's a far more naturally gifted player than Mark Selby, who eked out a win with a grind-your-opponent-down strategy, and very little of the wow factor shown by Murphy. I really hope Murphy can return to form for this year's World Championship. My point in all this is how one-time winners like Murphy and Trump lack the consistency to dominate and become legends of the sport, despite their natural ability. Again, these are just observations, probably ones you've covered before, but I'd be keen to know your thoughts if you have the airtime. Um, this business about being naturally gifted, I don't think means anything, actually, because, so what? It's about winning. <laughs> natural talent, um, and there are players who, have, who certainly have natural aptitude, only gets you so far. Uh, I disagree that Mark Selby, it, it, was, it would grind your opponent down. He actually, if you go back to... The early rounds of the Crucible last year, he played very attacking snooker. The first match against Kurt Mafflin, he was going for everything, actually, and playing brilliantly. Uh, same in the next round, I think, against Mark Allen. Um, I mean, it, there was frames there that did get a bit dragged out, but you'll get that in long matches. He buried Mark Williams in the quarterfinals, just completely outplayed him. Then it did get a bit more bogged down against Stuart Bingham in the semi-finals. And Selby controlled the final, playing to his strengths, which is what you've got to do. You don't play to your opponent's strengths, you play to your own. But he didn't just grind out the World Championship, actually, last year. There were, there were matches, particularly early on, where he played very attacking snooker, very positive snooker. And I think a lot of that was down to the work he'd done with Chris Henry. You know, actually go there and try and enjoy it. <laughs> don't try and make it a kind of miserable experience. And that's what he did, and, and he was the rightful winner. In terms of one-time winners... Well, you know, it's a bit like saying... I always think about this, you know, oh, you've only won one World Championship. It's a bit like saying to Ringo Starr, you're the worst member of the Beatles. Well, the fact is he's still a member of the Beatles, you know. The dream of every young snooker player, and you see it in, in clubs, you know, or used to see it when I played people potting a black and doing the Dennis Taylor celebration. The dream of any young snooker player is to be world champion. And if you've been world champion once, that is a massive achievement. You've achieved your dream. Um, so obviously everyone wants to be mul a multiple champion but there's n nothing wrong with being a one-time world champion you're still world champion let's move on to Scott Pease I was wondering why there's never commentary for table 2 I presume the reason is money but if they're putting in the effort to let people watch it surely there would be more viewers with commentary which should be desirable I almost never watch table 2 for this reason even if it's a match I prefer over table 1 if both had commentary uh, well, Scott, I'm, I'm not sure which tournament, whether this is a specific tournament you're talking about, a specific channel, because quite often there is commentary on table two, the BBC events. Um, well, obviously there's two with another table, the UK and the, the World Championship have commentary. Um, it's true that, uh, for example, on Eurosport we tend to just do table one, um, although the World Championship and the UK Championship we have commentary on table two, on, usually on the Discovery Plus app. Um, 
ITV at the moment don't have commentary on table two. Whether that will change, I couldn't say. So there are certain tournaments, you're right, that don't have it. Um, it can only ever be cost because obviously, you know, you'd have to pay, you know, to, people to do it, I guess. Um, and all these programs and productions have budgets and sometimes it, it just isn't felt worth, you know, spending the extra money when you've got a sort of divided audience because the, you're putting all the production into table one. In an ideal world, every every match would have commentary on it and every match would have the full works, but, you know, people have to work within production budgets. It may all change in the future. I think certainly the sort of streaming, um, uh, the streaming platform, uh, various platforms, you know, you now have a choice of matches and who knows, in the future, they may all have commentary. Championship League, I don't know whether you refer to that, that. We used to do both tables. We now concentrate on one. So we used to have one commentator on table one one commentator on table two, we now have two commentators on table one um, because it's uh, going out on, on, on a television channel as opposed to streaming. But uh, yes, so that, that's essentially it. it. It's like most things, it comes down, I guess, to money. Now, Adam writes, My name is Adam. I live in Germany and I'm an avid listener to the show. I first want to say thank you for your podcast. The love and admiration for snooker and the willingness to continue to embrace the dying art of self-deprecation is greatly appreciated. The podcast, particularly over the last two years, have been greatly appreciated. Well, thank you, Adam. I appreciate that. He says, I have a five-year-old daughter and we recently experienced a breakthrough when she started showing a genuine interest in playing snooker. For a couple of years already, she's known the chorus to Snooker Loopy. We were learning the colours. And she started to play a game on a tablet called Total Snooker. Many other games are available. So far, we have mostly engaged in extremely high-scoring frames, with many foul points accumulated on each side, something like Anthony McGill versus Karen Wilson in the World Semi-Final. The other day, she very proudly proclaimed, I smashed the white ball into the pocket, Daddy. So there's still some work to do. Like I said, I live in Germany, and access to quality snooker tables is very limited for me. I predominantly get my snooker fix from occasionally playing computer games and watching Eurosport, which offers pretty good coverage here, even if the snooker does frequently get bumped by more popular sports. A big shout-out here to Rolf Kahl, the German Eurosport commentator, who does a great deal of good work for the game. I'd like to help my daughter maintain an interest without smothering the fun and just have it to be a social thing that we can enjoy. The traditional first step is obviously to get a table or gain access to a table. And obviously nothing will ever beat table time, but I think certain computer games could help future players to understand the theory and physics of the game even before they're ready for playing on a decent-sized quality table. Something akin to a racing simulator or being complementary to driving an actual racing car. I remember playing on a small table as a child, a table which warped significantly over time, and this led to considerable overhitting of the ball to not allow as much scope for the balls to drift. I never had the talent to become a professional, but I often wonder how I would have developed my game if I had access to better facilities or even the ability to simulate playing under clinical conditions. Do you think there will be a shift to integrating certain simulation technologies to enhance the performance coaching of the best players. I'd just like to point out I'm not advocating this approach. It's just a talking point and something I'll look into to try and promote some interest in the game, particularly with respect to the resources I don't have. Furthermore, like most parents of small children, I don't want to overdo it with screen time, and I'm just looking for ways to share some fun playing and appreciating snooker. I wish you all the best with the podcast and all of your other endeavours. Thank you, Adam. And firstly, uh, before we get to the main point, I, I would definitely reiterate what you say about Rolf Kalb, who's done an enormous amount of work popularising snooker in Germany, explaining the game 
to viewers and just basically being an evangelist for the sport. So uh, we're a big Rolf Carb fan. Um, and you, you touch on something in Germany, which we often say, which is the support is definitely there, but the playing opportunities are not. There's not that many places to play. And you can't beat having that opportunity. I mean, we talk in Britain maybe a bit too much about how clubs have shut down and blah, blah, blah. But actually, there are still a lot of places you can play snooker in Britain, far more than most countries. Um, so if you don't have that opportunity, then maybe what you're talking about, you know, sort of playing a computer game, can at least keep the interest going. Hopefully what it would do is lead to your child, if they're interested in playing snooker on a computer, to then say, look, can we find somewhere to go and play? Um, now, I, I must declare interest here because myself and Neil Folds did the commentary on the Snooker 19 uh, game, uh, which we sat in... A, we, people think this is glamorous, but we sat in a room, three days in a room in Barnsley. I don't know why it was Barnsley, but anyway, we sat there recording various um, sentences, and then they were all knitted together by the, by the team there. So, you know, I, obviously I'm not going to diss that. I think... Um, I mean, they had a virtual world championship during the lockdown, actually. Um, you know, and people like playing on there, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but you can't beat the real thing, you know, playing on a, on a real snooker table. But you need the opportunity, as you say. And, and if if you're not, if there isn't a, a decent table nearby, I guess you have to make do. Um, can it be integrated into the sport? I mean, p- potentially. But what I, what I noticed, because I did the commentary on the virtual world championship, a lot of the shots they played, you would never play in a frame of snooker. You know, they pot a red... They'd be plumb on the black, but they, for whatever reason, take on a long blue, which on the, on the computer, if you aim correctly, you're going to get. But on, on on a match table, that's not the shot to play. Um, so it maybe slightly distorts your view of how to play. Um, I think the, the best way of sort of finding out how helpful it could be would be to get a professional, actually, to sit down, play it, and then give their feedback. What are the helpful sort of parts of it? And in what way could it help their game? They may say it couldn't. Um, it's just enjoyable. But anything that keeps the snooker flame burning has got to be good. We continue with someone who uh, signs themselves Max. A bit of a character, I believe. But anyway, two questions. Would you like to see better camera angles on television coverage, such as a camera positioned either within the cue ball, in the tip of a cue, or a solution that's already available, a head cam? Uh, no, I don't, don't want to see a camera in the cue ball. Because that would just be like being on a roller coaster. Um, the, of course, the pocket cam. I mean, we we take that for granted now. There was a time when that was considered to be extraordinary that you could have a, a camera in a pocket. Um, and uh, early on, it was. Uh, I mean, you know, technology as we know evolves, and early on, the, 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 it was quite fiddly. If you look at the early, the earliest tournaments with a, a camera in the pocket, the pockets were kind of had to be sort of extended the back of them to fit the camera in. Because nowadays uh, it's, uh, things have changed. But uh, uh, in terms of a head cam, well, Snooker did this recently. They got a GoPro um, and uh, they, they did a couple of practice sessions with players um, with a camera on their head. And it, was, it just made you feel ill. It was just shaking. Because obviously, you know, natural body movement and whatever, they're sort of shaking around. It, it didn't add anything for me at all. I think the camera angles, uh, you know, they've changed over the years. Typically, cameras have been added. But recently, actually, in the last... Sort of couple of years, uh, Loop Productions who do a lot of the coverage. They've got the overhead camera, the full table, which I think is really good. You can see the whole table sort of sideways on. And as we've already spoken about the shootout, they had the three hundred and sixty degree camera. So things are still evolving, and uh, I'm sure as sort of sports coverage continues to to grow, then uh, people will come up with new ideas. But uh, I don't want a camera in the cue ball. No, 
second question do you think there will ever be another world champion who's not known for their bright, big break building abilities the last two I can think of are Graham Dot 2006 and Peter Ebden 2002 why it's important to have a big break builder while it's, sorry, while it's important to be a big break builder it would be great to see someone get over the line without scoring a single century en route to the final or in the final itself if only to illustrate the importance of tactics, safety play and mental strength uh, and then he ends with, P.S., what do you get when you cross a Belgian snooker player with a cartoon dog? The answer is Luca Snoopy. That's Luca Snoopy. <laughs> it's quite a good joke, that. And again, anyone else wants to write in with puns and jokes, feel free. We've got, you know, we, 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 a couple of months we might need the material. Um, Peter Ebden, actually, I think, was a, a pretty good break builder. And Graham Dot as well has made plenty of century breaks. He's just in that tournament itself and particularly the final that they played, you know, it wasn't a high-scoring affair, really. The only world final not to have a century in, in it was 1985, a final that's remembered for other things, Dennis Taylor and Steve Davis. Um, I think it, it would be very, very, very unlikely for anyone to win the World Championship now without being a heavy scorer, or any tournament, actually, um, because the game has just changed, and, you know, players down the list, you see players... Right down the rankings now, making you know a bunch of centuries in matches and not always winning them. Um, that's the way things have changed. So, I think it's unlikely to happen. Um, so the answer, I, I guess, is no. I think uh, you know break building is one part of the game. We think of players who have other sides to the game. Yan Bing Tao being an example of a player who, despite his young years, only twenty two, um, he's very ta tactically sound, but he's also a heavy scorer. I mean, in the in the players' championship, he only played two matches and made six centuries. Um, so you have to have that. So you have to have that side of it as well. You know, these days you have to score, and uh, I think it's unlikely we'll see someone who's not a scorer winning that tournament. Mark Stevenson writes: I've been meaning to send an email into the podcast for over a, a year now. Finally got round to it. First and foremost, just want to say thanks for the podcast. I'd, ne I'd never even listened to one before the pandemic, and after taking up walking to alleviate the boredom, I decided one day I'd listen to something other than music. As it was just after the Worlds in August 2020, a tournament I watched daily for the first time in nearly 30 years, there was nothing else to do, I searched on Snooker Podcasts and yours came up. I've listened religiously ever since. Well, thank you, Mark. And there you see one of the, uh, one of the benefits of the pandemic. <laughs> there haven't been many, but uh, anyway. He says, uh, like many my age, my interest in the game started with Alex Higgins at the start of the 80s, watching every tournament I could on TV. The baton then passed to Jimmy. And as his star faded, I'd just casually keep an eye on the World Championships and maybe tune in if it was a close match at the end. I could completely relate to friend of the podcast Dave Tyndall's comment that for many years he was only interested in a tournament when Ronnie was still involved. Since lockdown, my interest in the game has, however, been rekindled to a fashion and I am even making my first visit to the Crucible this April, finally getting round to it after having the intention of doing it for 40-plus years. So, uh, well, enjoy that, Mark. You, you will enjoy it, I can guarantee that. Uh, he says, anyway, just a couple of things. They refer to the early 80s, so I apologise for looking back, but it's what I remember best. See, Judge Trump has just turned off. He said he doesn't like all that, does he? But anyway, we do like it, so we're going to continue. He says, a few weeks ago, you mentioned a sliding doors moment. Can't remember what specifically. But that got me thinking about sliding doors uh, moments in the history of the game, specifically missed pots with huge consequences. I came to the conclusion there can't be a bigger sliding doors missed pot moment and the effects on two careers than Jimmy White rattling the red in the jaws the pocket with the rest went 59-0 up in the 30th frame against Alex Higgins in the World Championship semi-final in 1982. For sure, they both had two outstanding careers, but, that sure, but surely that miss changed both massively. Jimmy's six final defeats have been discussed to death, and everyone rightly points 
to 92 and 94 as his best chances, when both times it slipped from his grasp. But with Ray Reardon waiting in the final in 82, and I'm not doubting for a second Ray still wasn't the wily old campaigner then, I do honestly believe a young, fearless Jimmy would have won that final with ease over four sessions and hence landed his first crown. With this one under his belt so early, you feel this would have paved the way for one or two more and eased the pressure in such moments when he was, years later, still looking to land that maiden title he so craved. I do appreciate, however, that Jimmy himself has said he dreads to think what might have happened to him had he won the title at such a young age. On the other side of the sliding door, Alex wouldn't have come to the table and made arguably the greatest ever pressure clearance in snooker history. He wouldn't have landed that elusive second world title and giving us those iconic celebration scenes to last generations and would perhaps be remembered as a great of the game rather than a legend. Just my view, of course, any other spring to mind. Well, just take a sip of this beverage because it is a big subject. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great one, obviously. I mean, I think what I would say is about that, a lot of people have said, oh, Jimmy would have beaten Ray Reardon. There's no actual guarantee of that at all because Reardon was a proven winner. Uh, and of course, he was going, that, that's, the other, that's the other wrinkle in this story. He was, was going for his seventh world title. So actually, had he beaten Jimmy in the final, uh, let's say Jimmy beat Alex and Ray beat Jimmy, suddenly Hendry, to this day, is tie, tied with Ray Ridden. Um, you're right, Jimmy said, said, you know, he was very young then, he was only 20 when that final was played, uh, that 82 final, and he said he would have gone, he probably would have been dead. I mean, he literally, literally put it in as stark a terms as that. Um, yeah, it was an extraordinary moment, but actually, the, the, I mean, and there are, are a lot of others, obviously, you know, a lot of them revolve around the World Championship, but... I think another big one in terms of the history of the sport and where snooker kind of went in the 1970s was actually also involving Alex Higgins. 1972, semi-final with Rex Williams. Now, these were pre-TV days for the World Championship. Pop Black was on TV and little bits of snooker here and there, but basically snooker was still quite an anonymous sport for the wider British public then. And uh, the semi-final with Rex Williams, 30-all, I mean, it didn't mess around in those days, 30-all in frames... And Rex was 14 points in front, Rex Williams, and he missed a blue to the middle with the ball sitting lovely to win. And that one shot, you could argue, changed the history of snooker because Alex Higgins won the frame, he won the title, and there's absolutely no doubt that he was a key part in the 1970s of raising the awareness of snooker, bringing people to snooker. He brought a particular working-class audience which brought certain sponsorship TV had to take notice, and 10 years later, of course, he wins it again, as you say, in 82, suddenly we're live on television, we're on the BBC, we're at the Crucible, snooker's a big-time sport within Britain, and it's also a central plank of British culture. Now, if you, and Mark will uh, be able to do this because he's going to the Crucible, I've actually written a piece in the World Championship programme about all this, about Alex Higgins' because it's two anniversaries, 50 years since 72, 40 years since 82, and whatever you think of Alex Higgins, and he upset a lot of people, he did a lot for the way snooker evolved in the 70s. I think Steve Davis then took it on in the 80s, brought a new audience and middle-class audience, sort of, you know, redolent of the sort of Thatcher era. But Alex Higgins definitely winning that 72 title. Um, it was significant for snooker. Now, had Rex Williams beaten him, of course Alex could have won it the next year. So, we, you know, it wasn't all about that one shot, but... Rex Williams missing that blue, I think you can argue, was a significant moment. And maybe, you know, who knows? It could have really affected Alex. He could have gone off the rails. He, might, he may never have won it. We don't know. We don't know. But that's a, that's another, when I read this email, that's another one I thought of. 
uh, let us know. Anyone else um, with any thoughts uh, about uh, key moments? I mean, obviously, Willie Thorne's blue, you know, we've mentioned already. You know, maybe that could have been the start of something for him. But a lot of these, a lot of these things, I think a lot of the sort of balls that get missed, ultimately they they do, they they, they do sort of there are there of a piece with the certain characters of players. And you know, Jimmy's Jimmy is a beloved figure in the sport, quite rightly. But because of the maybe his lifestyle and maybe his character, he was never a Davis. He was never a Hendry in terms of that champion's mindset. And he didn't win the World Championship, although I, I noticed he recently he was saying he thought he could still win it, but um, I think that's, uh, well, you know, he's not going to, is he? Let's be honest. Uh, right, now then, Mark uh, Mark doesn't end there. He's got, to, he's got more to say. He says, Snooker theme music is a bit random, but do you remember the use of Vangelis to the unknown man as a theme to the BBC World Snooker in the early to the mid-80s? When I play this for people, they look at me blankly, despite being the same age band, with no recollection. Most of us, of course, know the more famous snooker theme, Drag Racer. I have vague memories of the 1980 World Final and 81 tournament, but 82 is when my snooker interest really took off, and this theme stuck firmly in my memories and stayed with me for the long haul. Brilliantly atmospheric, as a then nine-year-old, it gave me goosebumps, and still does, and really added to the flavour of the tournament for me. Bring it back, I say. I never knew what it was at the time or heard it again. There was no such thing as Shazam in those days, kids until 2020-ish, when I was in a bar in Tenerife, and a comedy magician act played it as part of his show. Stunned to hear it after so long, I purposely hung around till the end, so I could ask him what it was called. And he's put a YouTube clip up, he's on YouTube. Anyway, keep up the good work with the podcast, sir. It's even inspired me to pick up a cue again, and start playing again after many years. I used to play to a decent standard 20 years ago, though sadly the late 40s have taken the inevitable toll of my eyesight. You see, it's all linked together, because we had that email earlier. And now when I have a pot on with more than eight feet between the balls, I've realised I have a much better chance of sinking it by closing my eyes and using the force rather than relying on my vision to give me any kind of chance. There's a lot going on here. I'd like to hear more about this comedy magician act in Tenerife, actually. But, uh, yes, Vangelis, they did use that... Uh, now, <sighs> memories sort of merging to one. Was that used for... They had a programme, Frame of the Day, um, which was exactly as it... You know, a match of the day, Frame of the Day... They pick out, uh, you know, one of the best frames that played that day. My memory is possibly they used it for that programme rather than the main coverage, but I'm happy to be corrected on that. I think it's unlikely to be brought back because even the, the drag racer theme has been sort of souped up and made, you know, in that dread, <laughs> dread word, modern. Um, you can still sort of, you know, you can still sort of hear the tune, but it's nowhere. I mean, the, the classic BBC snooker theme tune is... To, to people of a certain age, um, and many of them will be listening to this podcast, it transports you right back to your childhood and those memories of, you know, sat by the fire with your nan watching Steve Davis. And, and that, that's, I'm not saying that in any way to be um, facetious. That is exactly what it reminds me of. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a great theme tune. It'd be nice if they brought it back properly, but uh, I suspect they won't. Anyway, Matt Tempest. From Berlin, he wrote to us last week, he said, I didn't mean to write two emails in two successive podcasts after the Dylan Snooker Venn Diagram shenanigans. Uh, I can guarantee I'm the only person in the world who has said that sentence today. The Dylan Snooker Venn Diagram shenanigans. Uh, yes, but since you mentioned snooker books, here goes. Putting aside the slew of recent to current prose ghost-written autobiographies, it's amazing how hard it is to find, out of print, some actual classics of the game for those of us to try and learn to master the basics ourselves. So he's listed three here. Joe Davis, How I Play Snooker, 
cited by everyone from Steve Davies on down, but long out of print and hard to find. It's actually a bit old-fashioned, very, very prescriptive and a bit long-winded. Uh, well, I could make a joke there, but I'm not going to. Uh, but, for, <laughs> but for all that, for all that's still absolutely essential. Uh, number two, Ray Reardon, Classic Snooker. The line drawings are quaint in the age of the YouTube video tutorials, but actually very useful and easier and quicker to refer to. Not essential unless you're a Reardon fan, but that is most of us over 40, also long out of print. Number three, Frank Callan's Snooker Clinic. Only from 1989, but also long out of print. Absolutely essential. Takes all of Joe Davis's advice, agrees with 100% of it, but condenses it and says 70% is right, 30% is right, but too restricted, basically. The big hardback format and 1980s photos don't help, but the text is crucial for anyone trying to improve or fix their technique. <coughs> well, I think I mean, they're all out of print, yeah, uh, Matt, but you can find these things online, I'm sure, eBay, Amazon, whatever. There'll be people out there with copies of these books. Um, and it's interesting to compare them and see how the sort of views of how you should play snook have evolved. I mean, I think everyone would. I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan has written, I think, three autobiographies, and even he's brought out novels. I think everyone would love to see a sort of coaching book or, a, or a, a, an instruction book from Ronnie. You know, how do you play snooker? Or even like someone like John Higgins or any of those guys, you know, you, you, would, you would pay attention to how the, the game should be played by one of these legends. But uh, anyway, maybe that's... Uh, Something for them to think about. Um, Matt continues, a separate shout-out for Clive Everton's excellent history of the administration of the professional game, which is pretty depressing in places, but only raises my admiration for Everton further. Yeah, well, this is Black Fast and Cue Ball Wizards, which is an extraordinary uh, eye-opening book uh, about Clive's uh, well, long, long time in snooker. And he says, and finally, why, last time I looked, are Terry Griffiths and Cliff Thorburn's autobiographies going for hundreds on eBay? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I have, uh, uh, Cliff's book, um, I don't have. I do have Terry's, Griff, which is quite uh, revealing, actually. He's very, um, it's a very human book. Terry Terry was a great player, and he's a great person, but he, he didn't always enjoy... He was a family man. He didn't enjoy being away from home for long periods playing snooker, even though he had a lot of money doing it and a lot of fame and whatever. He's celebrated quite rightly as one of the legends of the sport. But he, the thing about Terry was he... He had lots of jobs before becoming a snooker player. He didn't see it as a career. He was a postman. He worked in insurance. I think he was a bus conductor at one point. So he had a sort of, you know, normal family life. He was at home a lot and, you know, two children. And then suddenly he had to go off to play tournaments and he, he didn't always enjoy it. He talked about that a lot in the book. It's really interesting because you associate the 80s of being glamorous and, oh, we jetted around the world. He'd rather have been at home. <laughs> um, so anyway, Griff is a good book if you can find it and you don't want to pay hundreds of pounds. Uh, he signs off here, Matt, over and out. Many thanks for the podcast. You bring a bit of John Peel's wry wit and self-deprecating humour to the world of snooker, I feel. Well, that's kind of you. I can't uh, possibly claim that mantle, uh, the great man, but uh, thank you for listening. And uh, <coughs> finally this week, David Burney, our friend in... Oh, it's not finally, actually, we've got two more. David Burney, our friend in Canada, telling us about the uh, the BC Open uh, tournament they had there. The winner was, uh, I'm going to say Max Guan, uh, probably pronounced his name wrong, but congratulations to him. So in the best of seven, he lost the first two frames to his opponent, CCU. Guan dug in and won the next three frames. You stopped the bleeding with winning the sixth to force a decider. Decider lived up to it, a seesaw frame that saw Guan take the title on the last pink to achieve victory. So it sounds very exciting. He says, thanks for making your listenership aware of the tournament we're having over here in Canada. We had great viewership on the live stream and a successful tournament all round. Pleased to hear that, David, and uh, glad it went well. And finally, finally, we have Christian from Switzerland. He says, there's been some discussion on recent podcasts on the origins of the term Chinese snooker. Rolf Kalb, 
as another mention of Rolf, uh, usually tells this story about a particular well-known player who did some work promoting the game in China. Afterwards, during exhibitions back in Europe, he would jokingly explain to the audience that the Chinese were very interested in his snooker and taking up the game, but didn't fully understand it yet. So instead of hiding the cue ball behind another ball to cut off the direct line for the Reds, they would place the cue ball directly in front of the other ball. Said well-known player would then go on to play such a shot, thus establishing the term Chinese snooker. This happened in the late 80s or early 90s, I think. I can't remember who the player supposedly was, and he's put a few names forward, John Spencer, Cliff Thorburn, Steve Davis, even though Rolf Cowell tells this story every time a situation like this term comes up. But I frankly haven't watched German Eurosport regularly in the last few years, since I prefer the English commentary. Well, there's one in the eye for Rolf. Um, <laughs> so I don't remember the details that went well. Sorry if I messed anything up. Well, I have not heard that story, Christian, but it may well be the case. I wouldn't doubt Rolf. Um, I think the point is we don't really know, but um, it, it's a term. I mean, listen, terminology comes and goes, actually. And, you know, there's new ways of explaining things. And you know, I, I can't get excited about this, really. I think if people feel that we should, shouldn't use the term, then we don't use it. And that's, that's perfectly fine. Well, that's it for this week. Another hour of a man talking to himself ends. Um, big time of the uh, of the year for snooker, of course. I hope everyone's enjoying Thomas. And I hope everyone, uh, you know, I sound like some sort of door-to-door salesman here, but I hope everybody took advantage of the uh, Discovery Plus offer, which now ended. So it's gone back to, it's still a bargain, I think, 60 quid a year, but it was 30 quid a year until last week. And uh, enjoying a choice of tables from all the uh, all the tournaments. Um so, yeah, European Masters, next week Welsh Open, Turkish Masters, and so on and so on. World Championship will be with us very soon. In the meantime, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. You can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Um, that's it. I'm off to commentate now, so we're looking forward to the day's play. And, uh, yeah, thanks for all the comments and anything you've heard about that you want to comment on, get in touch. Um, because if you don't, I have nothing to say. (laughs) Goodbye, bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.